Welcome to True Crime Works, a true crime podcast. This is episode number 32, the University of Texas Tower Shooting. Hey everyone, welcome back to True Crime Works. I'm your host, Ash, and this week's episode number 32 is about the University of Texas tower shooting. And I'm sure you're somewhat familiar with this topic because at the time it was the deadliest mass shooting by one person in the United States. And that was surpassed 18 years after it happened with the McDonald's massacre in 1984. So you're at least probably somewhat familiar with this case. If you were like me, you probably have heard about it, but you didn't know the exact details and a lot about the man who was responsible for this, Charles Whitman. So I'm going to be going into a lot of details about him, what led to this, the events that happened, and the aftermath. It's a very sad and tragic case, that's for sure. There are no announcements this week, so let's just get right into this. On the day of August 1st, 1966, Charles Whitman would take rifles and other weapons up to the observation deck on the main tower at the University of Texas at Austin. Then he would fire on people on the surrounding campus and also the streets. This would last for 96 minutes. He would kill 16 people and one unborn child. The 16th victim would die 35 years after the tragedy from injuries sustained on the attack. He would also injure 31 others. So what exactly led to this kind of tragedy? Well, I always like to go over the childhood of the person who committed this act and kind of get some insight into what was going on with him at the time and what his thought process was to do something so terrible. Charles was born Charles Joseph Whitman on June 24, 1941, in Lake Worth, Florida. His parents were Charles A. Whitman Jr. and Margaret Whitman. He was the oldest of three boys. Those closest to the family said that his childhood was kind of rough. His father was described as very cruel and also very demanding. He expected a lot out of his boys and his wife. His father was actually raised in an orphanage in Savannah, Georgia, and he described himself as a self-made man. So he did provide for the family, but he also was known to abuse them physically and emotionally. Most accounts say that Charles was described as a polite child who did not lose his temper. He was also said to be very, very intelligent. At the age of six, he took an IQ test, and his IQ was 139, which is really high. He really excelled in school, and his father accepted nothing less from him. He really had no choice. His mother, Margaret, was a devout Catholic, and she raised her boys to be Catholic as well. They went to church a lot and also served as altar boys in the Sacred Heart Roman Catholic Church. Margaret was abused by her husband, allegedly, 
but she did not do anything because he was the man of the house, and in her eyes, she had no choice. Charles's father was known to be a firearms collector and a gun enthusiast. He taught each boy how to clean, shoot, and maintain weapons, and also took them on regular hunting trips. Charles would become an Eagle Scout with the Boy Scouts at 12 years old, and that's reportedly one of the youngest ever to become an Eagle Scout. Charles attended St. Anne's High School in West Palm Beach, Florida. Most people say that he was a pretty popular student, and he was known for his intelligence. And no one really had anything bad to say about him at this time. During his high school years, his father was still very, very tough on him and expected nothing less than perfection from him. He once confided in a family friend that he came home drunk one night when he was a senior in high school, and his father beat him so bad he threw him into the family pool. Charles would graduate from high school in June of 1959, and he was seventh in his class of 72 students. After this, he enlisted in the United States Marine Corps, and he would do this without telling his father. He would leave home in July of that year for an 18-month tour of duty with the Marines at Guantanamo Bay. His father still did not know that he was enlisted. When his father did find out about this, he was very upset about it, and he actually telephoned a branch of the federal government and tried to have this canceled because he did not want his son to do this. Or he was just so upset that his son did this without telling him. He did really well in the Marines at this time. He received many awards like a Good Conduct Medal and a Sharpshooter's Badge in his time in the Marines. After completing the 18-month assignment, he applied to the U.S. Navy and Marine Corps Scholarship Program, where he intended to become a commissioned officer, so he would complete college and then go on to become an officer. He earned high scores on the examination, and he was approved to go to a school in Maryland. And after that, he became approved to transfer to the University of Texas at Austin, and he would study mechanical engineering. He would go on to the University of Texas in 1961. During this time, he would actually have a hard time in school and became a poor student. He would really start gambling a lot, which affected his academics. He also got in some kind of legal troubles. Charles and two of his friends were observed poaching a deer. Someone driving by noticed their license plate number and reported them to the police. The three of them were butchering the deer in the shower of Charles's dormitory, and they were arrested. He was fined $100.00 which would be about $900 plus in today's money for the offense. Today's episode is brought to you by Amio. Amio is a travel booking platform that makes planning a journey in Europe and North America effortless. Just enter your travel details and Amio will magically give you all the train, bus, flight, and ferry options for your journey. It's never been simpler to book your first real vacation for 2021. Best of all, using Amio saves you time and money. That's a win-win in our books. Amio wants to help you leave your house this summer by offering 5% off your next booking. Just head to amio.com and use the code AMIO5 at checkout. That's O-M-I-O-5. 
valid until July 31st for new users on all modes of transportation. It's just the pick-me-up 2021 needs. Amio, plan, book, and love the journey. Terms and conditions apply. In 1962, he would meet his wife. He met Kathleen, who was 20 years old and two years younger than him. She was an education major. This was his first serious girlfriend, and they dated for about five months before they became engaged in July of 1962. That August, they were married in a Catholic church in Kathleen's hometown in Texas. And they would choose the 22nd wedding anniversary of Charles's parents for the date of their wedding. Kathleen's family approved of Charles and said that he was very bright and handsome and that they had high hopes for this union. Charles would suffer a setback because he had bad grades and the Marines decided that it was not good enough for the continuation of his scholarship. So instead of continuing his education, he was ordered to active duty in February of 1963, where he went to in North Carolina. He was promoted to Lance Corporal, but apparently he resented the fact that his college studies were over and was not happy about this at all. He still had a good reputation as a Marine, but he was really getting into trouble with gambling. In November of 1963, he was court-martialed for gambling and the possession of a personal firearm on base. He was actually demoted from Lance Corporal to private. By the end of 1963, Charles was very stressed about life in general. He was not happy about how his life was going in the Marines, and especially the court-martial. Instead of blaming himself for his actions, he seemed to blame the Marine Corps. He was, however, happy in his marriage and did really miss his wife, Kathleen. In December of 1964, Charles Whitman was honorably discharged from the Marines. He returned to study at the University of Texas at Austin and enrolled in the architectural engineering program. He took a few odd jobs to support his family, and in January of 1965, he took a job with Central Freight Airlines as a traffic surveyor for the Texas Highway Department. His wife, Kathleen, worked as a biology teacher at Lanier High School in Texas. And at this time, she was making more money than her husband, which really upset Charles because this was the 1960s and that was sort of unheard of. And he really felt a need to provide for his family and he kind of felt inadequate about this. He also was having some kind of internal struggles. He would tell his friends that he actually hit his wife two times and he said that he despised himself for this and was so afraid that he would become like his father. He just wanted to be a good husband and he did not want to be abusive. So this behavior really terrified him. Now, also during this time, Charles would have to deal with another form of stress. And this was when his parents separated. In 1966, Margaret Whitman decided to divorce her husband and she said that this was because the years of physical abuse, and she was just tired of it. Charles drove to Florida to help his mother move to Austin, Texas, which would be closer to him. Of course, he was terrified that his father would become violent when they prepared to leave, so he actually had local police remain outside the house while his mother packed up her stuff to leave. 
His younger brother, John, left to move to Austin with his mother. And the middle child, Patrick, stayed behind and worked in his father's plumbing business. Margaret moved to her own apartment in Austin, Texas, and worked in a cafeteria. But she did still stay close to her estranged husband. And he was calling her and his son, asking if she would come back. And during this time, it was very stressful for Charles. And he was experiencing severe headaches at this time, which had just started. On the evening of July 31st, 1966, Charles went to visit his mother in her apartment and stabbed and shot her to death. He wrote a note that tried to justify his act, saying that he was trying to relieve his mother from her sufferings and her pain. After he murdered her, he came home and typed out another letter, and this one was telling about his plan to murder his wife. And when she fell asleep, he stabbed her to death. The note about why he killed his wife said the same stuff, that he was trying to rid her from the horrors of what he was about to do. On the next day, August 1st, 1966, he purchased the necessary firearms and ammunition. At around 11.25 a.m., Charles reached the University of Texas, and he showed false identification as a research assistant so he could obtain a parking permit. He wheeled all the equipment to the main building of the university. He found the elevator was not working, so an employee named Vera Palmer activated it for him, and he thanked her. He hauled everything up to the 27th floor, to which a flight of stairs led him up to the observation deck. At the observation deck, he would encounter receptionist Edna Townsley, and he injured her with the butt of his rifle and then hid her behind a couch. Some tourists were coming up to the stairs, and he would shoot one of them to death. At 11.48 a.m., he began shooting from the tower's outer deck, and he would shoot several students in the South Mall Gathering Center. A history professor would be the first one to notice what was going on, and he informed the Austin Police Department. And of course, news got around fast, and it created a lot of commotion around the campus. A patrolman named Billy Speed was one of the first officers to arrive to the scene. And he would try to take refuge behind a column stone wall, but Charles would shoot through the six-inch space between the columns of the wall and end up killing Speed. An officer named Houston McCoy, who was only 26 years old at the time, heard about the shooting on his police radio. He tried to look for a way into the tower, and a student offered to help, saying that he actually had a rifle at his home. So he drove the student to his home to retrieve the rifle. Alan Crum was a 40-year-old retired Air Force gunner, and also the manager at the local university bookstore. He looked across the street and saw a 17-year-old newspaper boy being dragged, and he assumed that this boy was in some sort of fight, so he went across the street to break it up. But he quickly learned that the boy had actually been shot, and he heard more gunshots. Crumb rerouted street traffic out of the way, and he was unable to make his way back to the store safely, so he went to the tower instead, where he offered to help the police. Inside the tower, he accompanied Department of Public Safety agent 
Dub Cowan, and Austin police officer Jerry Day up to the elevator. Cowan provided Crum with a rifle. At about noon, Officer Ramiro or Ray Martinez was off duty at his home, and he heard about the attack on the news, so of course he called the police station, where they told him to go over to the campus and direct traffic. But once he was there, he found officers already doing that. So he went to the tower to help. He assumed that he would just find a team of officers there already. But when he got to the 27th floor, it was only Cowan, Crum, and Day. Martinez would reach the observation deck first, and he told Crum to remain at the door. McCoy and Day would reach the observation deck a few minutes later. At some point, Crum would accidentally fire his rifle. And around 1.24 p.m., Whitman was looking south for the source of the rifle shot. And this is when Martinez and McCoy rounded the northeastern corner of the observation deck. Martinez jumped out and fired in the direction of Whitman, missing him with all the shots. McCoy leaped out while Martinez was firing and saw Whitman's head looking over the light. McCoy fired at the top of the ballast, hitting Whitman between the eyes with several pellets, killing him instantly. McCoy fired again, hitting Whitman on the left side of his face. Martinez grabbed McCoy's shotgun, ran to Whitman's body, and fired direct shotgun blasts into Whitman's left arm, even though he was deceased. In the immediate aftermath, Martinez was nearly shot himself by those on the ground, who at this point did not realize that Whitman was dead. Martinez and McCoy were awarded Medals of Valor by the city of Austin. Immediately after the shooting, the tower observation deck was closed. The bullet holes were repaired and the tower reopened in 1968. It closed again in 1975 because of four suicides. It was opened again in the year 1999 after security measures were installed and visitors had to be screened by metal detectors. In 2006, a memorial garden was dedicated to those who died or were affected by this. A monument listing the names of the victims was added in 2016, on the 50th anniversary of the shooting. The tower's clock was stopped for 24 hours beginning at 11.48 a.m. And the day was declared by the city of Austin as Ramiro Martinez Day. The shooting itself lasted for 96 minutes and hundreds of people were in harm's way at this time. One of the survivors was a woman named Claire Wilson James, who was 18 years old and pregnant at the time. She was actually the first person who was shot from the tower. She survived, but her unborn baby did not, because the shooter shot her stomach. Her boyfriend, who was walking right next to her, Tom Ekman, died instantly after being shot. She gave an interview to NPR later and would say that she did not speak about the incident for many years after that. There was no mention of the shooting in the graduation that year or the school's yearbook. It was just business as usual. Classes were canceled for just one day and businesses resumed as usual. Looking back, she felt like the tragedy was pushed aside. People were encouraged to move forward, but not really focus on healing and what they had been through. During the 96 minutes of terror, 31 people were injured from the shooting and 15 people died. 
including the unborn child. Tragically, in the year 2001, 35 years later, David Gunby would die at 58 years old in a hospital in Fort Worth. He was initially injured from the shooting. And when he died in 2001, his death was ruled a homicide because this was from the chronic kidney problems he suffered from the gunshot wound so many years earlier. The medical examiner would say, quote, There is really no doubt that his death is related to his initial injury, and therefore we ruled it as a homicide, end quote. In the investigation later, officers would find that Whitman had visited several university physicians in the year before the shooting, and he was prescribed several different kinds of medication. In his suicide letter, Charles would request an autopsy be performed on his remains because he felt like there was some kind of biological cause for his actions and also for his intense headaches. He stated that he was victim to irrational and unusual thoughts, even though he tried to stop this. On August 2nd, an autopsy was conducted with the permission of his father. They discovered a pecan-sized brain tumor. The neuropathologist performing this stated that the tumor had no effect on Whitman's actions. However, these findings were later revised by the Connolly Commission that said, quote, It is the opinion of the task force that the relationship between the brain tumor and Charles J. Whitman's action on the last day of his life cannot be established with clarity, end quote. So they're really not sure if this could cause something like that or not. It does seem, however, that professionals, when they look at this case, they're torn between whether this is a possibility or not. Some believe that it has absolutely no effect on his actions, but others believe that it's not as clear-cut, and many are just unsure. And I myself have no idea how stuff like that works, so I really have no idea if it's even a possibility. There have been forensic investigators that theorized that the tumor pressed against the part of the brain that is related to anxiety or fight-or-flight responses. Now, you may be wondering what happened to Charles's father. He really kept to himself after everything happened, but he did give an interview to the Palm Beach Post in the year 1996. He was suffering from Alzheimer's at the time, and his short-term memory would come and go, but he did not forget what happened. He said that he really kept his pain private because he's a private man, and also because no one really asked about it because they didn't want to talk about it, or they didn't want to make him feel bad or something. He said no one was cruel, but they tried not to mention it. He called his son Charles a sick young man. He said he had a tumor on the brain, and by birth he was his son, but he was not his son. He was a sick young man. He said that his daughter-in-law, Kathleen, would call them from Texas and say that Charles was beating his head against the bathroom wall, and... Margaret would even go to Austin to try to help, but Charles would not listen to anything that she said. He said that he doesn't like going to Charles's grave, but he does sometimes. And he gave the interview because he hoped that if there was another angry young man, maybe he would see Charles's picture 
and realize what he had done and hold back from what maybe he intended to do. So he wanted to help someone from possibly committing something like this. And in the interview, he also pushed aside reports that he had abused his wife and children and said that that was not true. At the end of the interview, when asked if he would give a word to his son, he said, quote, I love you. That's it. End quote. So the dad would lose his son, Charles, and his estranged wife, Margaret, that day. But that was not the only loss he would suffer. The youngest boy, John, was shot at the age of 24 and died at a bar in Lake Worth in 1973. And it is unknown if it is related to anything else. The middle boy, Patrick, who became a plumber like his dad, died in California from AIDS complications. And the father, Charles, Whitman would die in 2001. So there was just a ton of tragedy there in that family. So that is the University of Texas tower shooting. And it's just so heartbreaking that in one moment, 96 minutes, everything can change. So many people were injured and lost their lives. And a lot of people's lives changed forever after that. I hope you enjoyed this episode of True Crime Works. If you did, if you could do me a favor and rate, subscribe, and review wherever you get your podcasts from. It really helps the show out, and it also helps others find the show. Thank you so much for your support. I really appreciate it. Also, if you have any ideas for upcoming cases, you can email me, truecrimeworks at gmail.com, or you can also send me a message on Instagram. It's at truecrimeworks, and you can see the logo there. I check that pretty much every day. I hope that everyone has a great rest of your week and I look forward to talking to you next week.